It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. The controversial 340B drug program is back in the news. The federal government wants to delay enforcement rules. Tim Powell is standing by with our lead story. Whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by in London to report on a nurse who's blown the whistle on three healthcare systems. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. J. Paul Spencer reports on prepayment audits. And Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Buckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Do you realize that the two-midnight rule has been the law of the land for the last four years, seven months, and 14 days, and there's still widespread confusion about it? Of course, part of that continued confusion is the inability to get straightforward answers from CMS on what seems to us to be straightforward questions. And of course, they changed the rule in 2015 by removing the need for certification of all admissions, and they changed again in 2016 with a case-by-case exception, and they may change it again this year with a proposed softening of the admission order rules. I guess it's no wonder that people are still confused. When I give my two midnight talks at hospitals to physicians and utilization review staff, I start by telling the audience that I want the doctors to have a basic understanding of the rule, and I stress the importance of their documentation, but I want the UR staff to be the masters of the rules. Doctors have enough on their plate trying to keep up with the advances in medical care and meet all of the quality measures adopted by the multiple oversight agencies many of which, by the way, have very little actual evidence to support their measures. And if they do try to master those admission rules, it's inevitable that the rules will once again change, and then they'll have to start all over again. That's why we need to provide them access to UR staff and physician advisors who can look at the case and guide them to the right status whenever they need the help. Speaking of needing help, I'm also not surprised that there's continued confusion about the status of total knee replacements. I've done several presentations recently, and it's tough. The orthopedists fall back on the position statement from their professional society, which espoused inpatient admission as the default status, which, of course, CMS flatly rejected. They see an added burden of more documentation without any gain for them. And I've heard from many hospitals where the orthopedists are just taking a stand, admitting all is inpatient and letting the hospital deal with it. So how should a hospital deal with that? Well, of course, efforts should continue to get them on board. But until that point, hospitals are obligated to follow the rules even if the doctors won't. Therefore, every admission should be reviewed during or after discharge by a physician advisor to determine if the patient did in fact warrant inpatient admission based on documented risks, delayed recovery, need for in-hospital therapy, or need for skilled nursing facility care. If the inpatient admission was not warranted, an attempt should be made to change to outpatient prior to discharge with condition code 44. Now, most likely though, the physician will resist this, probably not even answering the phone, 
So perhaps the better plan would be to review all admissions after discharge and use the self-denial and rebuild process to make the switch from Part A to Part B. Cash flow will slow, but it can be done without physician concurrence. Payment will be the same, and most importantly, you're complying with Medicare regulations, and that should make everybody happy. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics of the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley, and I say to you, good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And despite the fact that Dr. Hirsch has provided some program updates that seem to have much confusion with CMS, I'd like to provide a little bit of a hot topic update from the Office of Inspector General where the guidelines are pretty clear. Um, Effective 1-6-2017, a little over a year ago, the OIG's anti-kickback safe harbor for free or discounted transportation was effective. And I had somebody ask me about this last week, so I thought I would provide a little bit of an update of when an entity can provide free or discounted local transportation. So under the safe harbor, a healthcare provider or other eligible entity um, can provide free or discounted local transportation if all of the following conditions are met. The provider has a policy that's applied consistently. The transportation's availability is not related to volume or value of federal healthcare program business. The transportation is not air, luxury, or ambulance transportation. Four, the transportation is not publicly advertised or marketed, and persons involved in transportation are not paid on a per-beneficiary transported basis. And five, the transportation is available only to established patients, and the um, safe harbor includes a definition of an established patient within 25 miles of the provider to or from which the patient is being transported in 50 miles in a rural area. Additionally, there's some guidance on providing shuttle transportation services. To read up on this, I ask everybody to turn to the December 7th, 2016 Federal Register. That's 81FR88368 to get that update. It's very important if you're providing transportation. And speaking of the OIG, Today's poll is to see if people have referenced, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, after the Compliance Institute, the new OIG resource webpage, just trying to see if our listeners have availed themselves of this. Check one, if you've visited the brand new Compliance Portal. Check number two, if you've visited the Compliance Portal and you emailed them suggestions, which you can right on the right-hand side of the portal. And check three if you haven't visited the compliance portal. And check number four if you're curious as to what is the compliance portal. Chuck, we'll be back a little later in the program to see where our listeners stand. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, J. Paul Spencer, Tim Powell, and Mary Inman reporting from London. This is Monday, it's May 14th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by.
Are you experiencing increased rates of medical necessity denials? You're not alone. Many hospitals are struggling with denials. Issue has risen to epidemic proportions. There is a disconnect between the status guidelines physicians are following and the tactics used by Medicare Part C auditors who exercise their own discretion when following CMS rules to target claims. Welcome to the new era of Medicare Managed Care. During an upcoming webcast, you and your team will learn that if providers assign the appropriate status to support medical necessity, they optimize quality data and ensure appropriate hospital reimbursement. Join us for Observation or Inpatient, How to Avoid Medical Necessity Denials. This exclusive RAC Monitor webcast is Thursday, May 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To attend, click on the Register button in the handout section of today's program or visit the RAC University web store. We're back and coming up later in this broadcast, J. Paul Spencer reports on prepayment audits. Also, Mary Inman reports from London on the whistleblower nurse who knew too much. And Tim Powell reports our lead story on the controversial 340B drug program. Well, we check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who is reporting on some risky business this morning. David, what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. You know, I think it's the hesitation to say, I don't know, I'll look into that. Last week, a number of companies were asked about why they had retained Michael Cohen, Trump's personal attorney. The answers are a great illustration of the peril of talking before you're certain of the answer. For example, Korea Aerospace said that it was, quote, unaware of the essential consultant's connection to Trump, unquote. The company said it paid Cohen's firm to inform reorganization of its internal accounting system. Now, Cohen's a lawyer in New York, and Korea Aerospace is... Uh, If they're looking for an accountant, they're not going to engage a lawyer from a solo personal injury firm. So the true story is something else, but they rushed to get a statement out. Had the company been smart, they'd have waited and told an accurate story the first time. Most of the companies that issued statements last week had to issue their initial statement, had, uh, had to revise their initial statement, learn from their impulsiveness. At the launch of a compliance investigation, there's often tremendous uncertainty. Witnesses can be lying. The computer system may be flawed in some unexpected way. Um, When an investigation starts, you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know the answers to questions. That's okay. Be comfortable with the uncertainty. Embrace it. Saying, I don't know we're looking into it, is perfectly acceptable. That leads me to a second topic, discussing Dr. Hirsch's segment from last week. It can be incredibly difficult to determine whether the letter you're holding indicating that um, some government contractor has concluded you've been overpaid is, in fact, an overpayment letter. Now, you might be thinking, David, you just said it's a letter indicating that you were overpaid. Doesn't that prove it's an overpayment letter? And that would make sense, but somewhat incredibly, the answer is no. Many government contractors, and even some government agencies, will send you a letter that they believe an overpayment has occurred. But many of these letters are merely a warning indicating that the actual overpayment letter, which is issued by the Medicare administrative contractor, will be forthcoming. For example, when a ZPIC audits you, they determine that they believe there's an overpayment, but they turn the matter over to the Medicare administrative contractor for actual recoupment. How can you tell if what you're holding in your hand is an actual overpayment letter? Well, an overpayment letter will include a date by which the payment must be made and information about your appeal rights. 
If the letter from Medicare simply has an amount due, the odds are high it's not an actual overpayment letter. Of course, getting this right is important. So if you have any doubt, check with counsel. But don't assume every letter using the word overpayment requires you to cut a check. We'll be talking more about that on Wednesday's webinar and denials and overpayments. I was, and still am, a big ABBA fan, Chuck. Uh, and Frida, a former ABBA member, sings a song that ties these two topics together. There's something going on. When there's something going on, take the time to figure out what it is. Acknowledge the uncertainty, and then determine whether your letter is an actual overpayment or merely a shot across the bow. So hopefully you'll tune in 1.30 Eastern, 12.30 Central, or 10.30 Pacific. If you're out in Hawaii, I guess that would be 8.30 in the morning. Hope we'll catch you then, and Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with a report on prepayment audits is Monitor Monday's national correspondent, J. Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, following up on David's lead, I have to state that I am an unabashed non-ABBA fan, but I certainly, while not named Fernando, can hear the drums of a certain type of beat far off in the distance. By now, we've had a chance to read the inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule for 2019 that indicates that there will be uh, prepayment audits of both Part C and Medicare Part D, which covers Medicare Advantage and the Medicare Prescription Drug Program. Uh, what is now uh, being brought forward far in the distance, and it has started with a uh, group uh, that entitles itself the Council for Medicare Integrity, is the idea that prepayment audits occur in the Medicare Part A and B realms as well. Now, we here at RAC Monitor uh, on the Monitor Monday broadcast have been looking at RAC uh, issues for uh, quite some time now. Uh, it's the reason for our existence, and we know uh, based on the results of some of these RAC reviews that the appeal process as it stands is currently uh, broken beyond repair to the point where uh, judges are now either ordering or asking for advice on how to fix it. Uh, so now what, now what we're left with is the Center, the Council for Medicare Integrity, which is a 501c6 organization that labels itself nonprofit advocacy, but looks very much like a RAC think tank, bringing forth the proposition that Part A and B should also be looked at. Uh, as part of any type of RAC review policy. Uh, now, obviously, this is an idea by which they attempt to plant a seed and make something grow, but a million questions pop into my head. Uh, first off, uh, if it's much different to state that uh, they're going to pay and chase when a, in particular Part A provider has been paid ahead of time. If we're dealing with uh, high-level hospital services where payment is now delayed uh, be far beyond the Medicare payment window, what does that mean for a RAC contractor who identifies something in prepayment and says, 
you can't have any money for this admission. How far does that appeal go uh, when the facility or the medical entity decides that they need to fight this? Uh, is it something that they are hoping that uh, providers will chalk up to, quote, the price of doing business and not appeal at all? Uh, it's something worth watching. It's something that we have to keep our eye on. Uh, you know, the word, in the words of the CMI spokesperson, they are asking CMS to apply the same important philosophy implemented within Medicare Advantage and Medicare Part D to similarly add prepayment claim reviews to benefit the Medicare fee-for-service program. Uh, all providers should be on watch and follow this very closely as their thought process evolves and as their audience grows for this particular idea. And for that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Modern Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a national healthcare consultant for doctors management. Thanks again, Paul. Imagine one nurse has blown the whistle on three, three healthcare systems. It's an unusual story that's gaining unusual media attention. And for details, we switch live to London and we check in with Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. Banner Health, a Phoenix-based health system that owns 28 hospitals across six states, agreed to pay over $18 million to settle allegations that 12 of its hospitals in Arizona and Colorado knowingly submitted false claims to Medicare by admitting patients who could have been treated on a less costly outpatient basis. Cecilia Guardiola, Banner's former corporate director of clinical documentation, brought this suit under the Federal False Claims Act, a law that allows private party whistleblowers to report fraud against the government and receive a piece of the recovery as an award. Under the False Claims Act, the government has the option to join the lawsuit and sue an alleged fraudster alongside the whistleblower, as it did in this case. Guardiola worked at Banner Health for less than three months and will receive a whistleblower reward of approximately $3.3 million. Generally, Medicare compensates healthcare providers significantly less for outpatient services than inpatient services. Per Medicare program rules, a patient's physician must decide if he or she needs hospital care for 24 hours or more, and if that's not the case, a patient should not be admitted to the hospital. There's also a third status that falls between inpatient and outpatient called outpatient observation status. Observation status is assigned to patients who require a significant amount of treatment or monitoring before a decision can be made about their admission or discharge, for example, following a surgery. According to Whistleblower Guardiola's allegations, Banner Health billed short-stay outpatient services as if they were expensive inpatient services and inflated the number of hours for which patients received outpatient observation care. Guardiola Guardiola's complaint specifies over 700 instances of alleged fraud. Guardiola was hired in October 2012 to improve Banner's documentation practices. At the time, Banner believed that missing codes were costing it millions in revenue. Guardiola uncovered many instances where misdocumentation was costing Banner significant amounts of revenue. But upon her review of short-stay inpatient claims, she discovered the alleged fraud. According to the complaint, Guardiola reported the wrongdoing to several members of Banner's senior management, but the issue fell on deaf ears. Guardiola left Banner Health only a few months later, and her whistleblower lawsuit was filed within a year of her departure. 
In addition to paying $18.3 million, Banner Health agreed as part of the settlement to a corporate integrity agreement with the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General. The CIA required the company to engage in significant compliance efforts over the next five years, including retaining an independent review organization to review the accuracy of the company's claims for all services provided to federally funded health care programs. This is the third time Ms. Guardiola has brought a successful whistleblower lawsuit against the hospital system where she has worked. In 2016, Guardiola successfully sued Renown Health in Nevada for similar practices and helped the government achieve a $9.5 million settlement. In 2012, as a result of Guardiola's lawsuit against Christus Spawn Health System, the federal government achieved a $5.1 million settlement with Christus. Guardiola's attorney says his client is basically unemployable in the healthcare industry these days due to her whistleblower status. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very, very much. That was whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon, and you can read her report in this Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor E-News. Our lead story this morning is about the controversial 340B drug program. It's back in the news. The federal government is proposing to delay enforcement rules on drug manufacturers. Here now with the details is Monitor Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Chuck. On Friday, Health and Human Secretary uh, Alex Azar gave a press conference uh, putting out what he had indicated was over 50 changes to the prescription drug policy that are currently in draft form. And I do have to say is um, not that, that the past repeats itself, but it reminds me of the fervor and the zeal that I saw when the Accountable Care Act uh, was first uh, was first implemented and was first uh, started to be drafted. So I, it seems to me that folks get uh, very uh, enthused as processes move forward, thinking that they can really make huge changes, which sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. Um, the announced policy changes focus in four key areas of changing healthcare uh, reimbursement for high for drugs. First is reducing uh, the high uh, caught the, the list of high-priced drugs, the list price. Second is reducing government rules that restrict the uh, ability of certain organizations to negotiate uh, with uh, with um, the patients and payers to reduce cost. Next is removing free riders from other countries. So there was a concern that that uh, other countries are getting a benefit of our uh, innovation without paying for it. And finally is reducing the uh, high out-of-pocket cost of certain drugs. Um, I can give my own personal example. I personally take a drug called Zorelto, which the list price is almost $550. Uh, the list price in Canada of the same drug is $116. Um, uh, and uh, finally, the out-of-pocket cost to me after insurance is uh, is fairly high. So, uh, you know, this is something that recently I had the opportunity to speak with a drug representative from Pfizer about the differential in uh, cost in between different countries. And his argument at the time was that we had just done a poor uh, job of negotiating within our country with the drug companies. So what specific steps have they outlined that uh, would impact the, uh, the areas that they're trying to focus on? Uh, first, the FDA wants to require a disclosure uh, at the list price of uh, drugs, particularly on television ads. 
they also want to have uh, a restriction in other countries of the use of what they call biosimilar products. So you have a uh, either a patent or a drug that's a that, that's a generic that's being reproduced in other countries using a biosimilar process. Uh, next was focusing on eliminating rebates, particularly non-transparent rebates. It was the um, the position of Alec Azar that one of the issues that's going on is that these these rebates are not transparent to uh, to, to the payers of the drug costs. But the thing that hits the 340B program in the biggest way is uh, they would like to make a move to move Part B drugs that are currently in the 340B drug program into Part D. So uh, we're very, this is the very early phases. We're not sure exactly how this is going to work. But the formulary uh, that is used for the covered drugs for the 340B program would start to shift into the Part D program. So uh, even if you relax the uh, or reduce the amount of the cuts that have happened to the 340B drug program, uh, whatever uh, you would get from that would be eliminated as the drugs are pushed into the Part, Part D program. So these would be those separately uh, prescribable drugs that were listed for specific reduction in, uh, in the 340B program would be simply moved into the Part D program. So it's kind of the idea that we're going to cut back on these reductions you're giving with one hand and taking away with the other. Um, I, I'm sure that there's going to be later updates. Uh, Mr. Azara said that it would take months to, to formulate final policy, and we will just keep you updated on what the impacts would be on that. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Modern Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim is a nationally recognized expert on regulatory matters. Tim is also a member of the BRAC Monitor Editorial Board. And now's the time for the results of our Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Chuck, you know, I just can't believe that Mary gave that terrific report from London, and she's sort of missing the elephant in the middle of the room. Mary, we were really hoping for an update on the wedding, but I guess the whistleblower update was good. Let's take a look at the results of our survey this morning regarding the OIG's new compliance portal. 13% of our listeners this morning have visited the compliance portal. No one has visited the compliance portal and emailed suggestions. And remember, the OIG is asking for suggestions there. And 61% of our listeners have not visited the compliance portal. And 24% are curious as to what the compliance portal is. That's the results of our poll this morning. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that have been coming in this morning. Our first question is for Dr. Hirsch. Sheila wants to know, Dr. Hirsch, can you repeat your statement about the actions of the hospital and comparing it to the case manager regarding knee replacements? She wants to know first if this is a downloadable document, and then also she understands you to be saying that if the account is reviewed after discharge, which she thinks you can't talk about doing that without condition code 44, you can't, we can't do a review after discharge. So if you could comment on that, that'd be great. Sure. So Medicare does say that the hospitals are responsible to, for making sure that all inpatient admissions were medically necessary. So we, they gave us in 2004 the ability to do that during the admission as a condition code 44. And then in 2013, they gave us the ability to do a self-denial and rebuild if we do it after discharge. So we're still looking to saying that the admission wasn't medically necessary and we, the status should have been outpatient since it's 
post-discharge, we can only change it to Part B. And I know that's confusing, and she can contact me via my website, ronaldhirsch.com, and I'll be glad to send her the transcript. Thanks. I'll just offer a quick comment on Nancy's segment. I'm, I'm glad that she brought up the safe harbor that exists for free transportation. The free transportation stuff can get confusing, and it's important to remember that there are really kind of two pieces to worry about, the anti-kickback statute and beneficiary inducement. But under either of them, the big question is, why are you offering the free transportation? So it isn't illegal per se to offer transportation. It's illegal if you're doing it basically to induce referrals or as sort of a compensation to try to create referrals. And so ultimately, the question is why, and you don't even need to meet the safe harbor, you just need to have a legitimate reason and not be doing it for an improper one. So Chuck, that's, I think, our questions and comments for today. I'll turn it back to you and hope we can see everyone on Wednesday for the webinar on appeals. Thank you very much, David. I look forward to being with you this coming Wednesday on that very important webcast. That is going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and I want to thank Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ron Hirsch, Mary Inman calling in from London, Tim Powell, and J. Paul Spencer. We thank you for being with us this morning. We look forward to your returning next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.